Crossings was recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. EWF pays our respects to Wurundjeri elders, past and present, and to the elders of all lands that this podcast reaches. You're listening to Crossings, the EWF in Conversation podcast. My name is Jess, and I'm the program coordinator of the Emerging Writers Festival. Today, I'm thrilled to share a conversation between Genevieve Callahan and Felix Garner Davis. Genevieve is a writer and performer based in Wurundjeri Country. In 2022, she released her first book called One Story a Day, published by No More Poetry Press. She's also one half of musical duo Water Science. Felix Garner Davis is a writer and architecture student at the Melbourne School of Design, having previously studied literature at Monash. His first book, Drone, was published in 2021, also by No More Poetry. Genevieve and Felix came together in Coburg North in September. What transpired was a rich conversation about the conscious and subconscious concerns of their writing, observations and close readings about the spiritual similarities and differences within each other's poetry and the way that their other artistic pursuits and interests relate to their writing practice. Their conversation begins by reflecting on the structure of their books One Story a Day and Drone. Yeah. I guess they were like... Because my experience of that publication, Drone, was as though a whole bunch of free material had been enclosed and formalised. Um, and I suppose in a way that reminds me of like the way in which One Story a Day was enclosed with the additional layer of the biblical structure. You know, does it feel to you as though when you reflect on that book, the structure of it contained a bunch of work that was free do you feel as though it was like cohesive and organized into a bookish thing before the biblical-esque or the mm. Bible-esque structure was well, arrived yeah. at? That's such a good and juicy question because I feel like I could probably answer that differently mm. every day. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but the first thought that I have is how much I owe to Joshua and Daniel from No More Poetry and the beautiful way that they arranged the book. They arranged it sequentially. Yeah. So, you know, one story a day is a thousand and one stories that were written in sequence over a thousand and one days. And Joshua and Daniel had the beautiful idea of rather than, you know, making it this date and this story, they had arranged it so that it was, yeah, in a biblical shape. Um which was something that was informed by a sense of the Bible or a sense of at least some kind of um, inherent Christian underlay that I was not conscious of at all, um, but that was on reflection very much informed by my childhood, something that is not part of my life anymore. But Joshua had really, um, and Daniel had both really perceived that theme running through it and they just grabbed it and they arranged the book that way with with my permission and celebration. But to come back to your question, that just felt like such a natural way to lay the book out in chapters and verses. Mm. And also given the scale of the thing, it needed something like that to encompass it. But while I was writing the thing, it had maybe a sense of aspects of a biblical structure mm. in that like maybe like the letters section of the Bible yeah. because of that sort of daily correspondence almost with myself that was happening through yeah. having a kind of rhythm in creating something every day. To come back to the kind of dream feeling, I definitely in going, going over Drone uh, in the lead up to chatting with you today, reread Drone a couple of times, which was just delicious to do, um, really, because something that's been striking me so much about drone and its structure is this kind of dreamlike quality to the whole thing. Um, obviously, the, your usage of words has a sort of, well, to me, feverous um, half-state feeling of senses and impressions, but also just like the scenes that you're suddenly planted in out of nowhere, have that feeling of a dream. And then in thinking about how that 
sits against one story a day. Mm. There's something similar. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, we both, something that struck me was this feeling like we, are, we, we both seem to be in a bit of a half state Yeah. in the way that we've approached these pieces of work. Yeah. And to put kind of a version of the question back to you, what, what was your feeling in putting this body of work together? Was, was there a kind of a, a cadence to, to its creation or, or was it something that, that, you know, happened randomly over a period of time? Or It's hard to think about in a way because, like, I have a feverish relationship with it day by day or whenever I think about it in general living, uh, which is that the version of it that I remember I don't like. And then whenever I reread it, because it's quite quick to zip through, um, I, I do actually really like it. So it's unusual in a way. Like it feels that, that disliked variant that occupies my head most of the time when I think of it fleetingly feels just as real. So it feels like there's an A and B version in a way, which mm. is unusual. So that's something that uh, is like the first hurdle with contemplating it. And then in terms of the additional hurdle uh, thereafter, comparing it with another piece of work, particularly a piece of work that kind of preempted it because we had that exchange via email with your 40 quarantine poems probably, I think, a month before I submitted the draft of Drone. So... Uh, yeah, in a way they were contemporaneous, this kind of like opening of dialogue between both of us and then the submission of the final of this book. It's difficult in a way to like, I, I was having some difficulty r- relating the two books uh, in a way that sounded impressive in my head. The only, <laughs> like structure is the, the only thing that came to me, which I guess is why I mentioned in that opening statement, the um, or question the... Um, the fact that for me the armature of drone was just a kind of for, like sort of procedural formalizing of it into an object. And then in a way the kind of silver cover, because it's so uh, forthright um, and noticeable and emphatic due to its reflectivity, it's kind of an unrelated aesthetic characteristic. Um, but to me that feels like a kind of uh, closure for the book. It's like mm. a frame. But yeah, I do view it as like probably in a similar way to your book, like a series of vignettes that uh, vacillate in how closely they co-occur and sometimes they bleed into each other and become as like sort of mutant vignettes. Um, and yeah, I've, I feel like in, in the same way, like the poems in both your quarantine set and the formalized text of one story a day have a similar feel to me in the sense that you can view them separately or in parataxis stacked next to each other or you can read them in a slightly different mood and feel as though they collide a little bit more and are kind of the same field. Maybe a metaphor would be like on one day they might feel like bubbles and another day they might feel like a foam <laughs> you know, comprised of constituent bubbles, but less atomized than than on on the the other day, where they're kind of in, more independent globes, but flexible. You know, like bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I love that image. I absolutely love that image. And I'm like, yeah, that that feels right to me. Thank you. Also, that feels right to me. And I mean, to your point on yeah, vignettes, I'd say is the most obvious sort of parallel between our works. Yeah. If we want to find one, maybe we don't need to strive to do that. But yeah. I do think without forcing it, there are a lot of um, spiritual similarities in our work, even if the the, the approach is technically different. Yeah. Um, I think something that struck me in this re-re-re-reading of Drone recently was this sense of innocence. Now, I don't know how you'll feel about me putting that label to it, but it's like I say that in the in the tenderest sense um, and also a slightly egotistical way because I feel like it's something that my work 
shares with yours. By innocence, I mean this sort of um, attempt at freshness in being in the world and of um, almost maybe rather than saying it inherently has innocence, it's seeking to have a kind of innocence and, and I mean innocence in a, a many different ways. Um, certainly a childlike quality sometimes of immediacy, um, grabbing the first word that feels right, whether it's like logically correct, um, which, you know, so often the, the most satisfying poetry does that. Often I find in your work what I'm often disarmed by is a sweetness an unexpected sweetness that in the midst of sometimes some very grand um, scenes, sometimes some incredibly intimate, quiet scenes, like you pull out between the macro and the micro so phenomenally that I feel like that's part of that dreamlike quality that can occur in your work. But they're in the midst of these sort of incredibly serious um you know, either serious visual moments or serious emotional moments or whatever they are, it, I, I'm often struck by suddenly there'll be some word in there that feels like a bit of child's babble or um, a cute kind of um, just a cute choice or yeah. something that fit, makes me giggle a little bit or where I've been sort of, yeah, been in this very grand headspace and then suddenly, um, you know, there's yada, yada, yada or there's... Um, even just just your use of assonance or um, it'll suddenly be very globby and um, or there's something that becomes very visceral in a a playful way like a child playing with bubbles or stamping in a puddle or um, playing with mud or something. And I feel like that's something I admire so much and reading your writing had that delicious effect of making me want to write you know when you read someone oh, who yeah, you, great feeling. who really like presses all the right buttons and you're like, oh, I need to go and write. And it sort of refreshed to me this, this reacquaintance with the work. It was like how much, how much I love that quality in writing yeah. and how much I seek to have that quality in my writing, consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to know what you think about yeah, this question uh, of innocence. Yeah, no, it's a it's an amazing thing to pick up in a way because it kind of reminds me like what the work is about. Sometimes I forget, you know, because uh, like maybe characterizing it to yourself is like at least for me it seems uh, unnecessary. I don't really. So it's almost like I feel as though it's not my place to think about it. And with reference to those two distinct uh, understandings that I have of that book in particular, the A and B understanding, one which is more favorable when I actually get to read it, and one which is less favorable when I haven't read it for a while. Um, I feel like I don't understand it very well. But uh, innocence is actually true of the process in the sense that one significant part of my childhood was uh, genre fiction and film, like science fiction and particularly fantasy. So I think probably like the admixture or the attempt to mix uh, an immediate moment uh, that might be a kind of um, articulation of a conversation, pleasant conversation in the kitchen with a housemate or something like that with some sort of like unrelated fantastical scene and intermingling those two conditions was uh, something that I was attempting to do uh, during the period of time that generated the poems that ended up being in the drone book. So there is innocence deep within the work in my recollection of its genesis because like losing myself in a book of like fairly bad science fiction or fantasy when I recall it, like I wasn't reading highbrow, you know, classic genre fiction. It was kind of YA actually, like mostly young adult fiction, like spy fiction as well. And uh, yeah, like losing yourself uniquely in those books is something that uh, like when I re- recall my childhood, that's probably the the major constituent, uh, and that's what gave me that feeling that you speak of, of mm. inspiration. 
it's kind of tricky. Like I almost want to like divert the conversation because <laughs> I would just be like, it might be a little bit like, you know, like right-wing cultural commentators in America on a podcast just saying, oh, you're so great. You're so brave. <laughs> <laughs> or it might be like yeah. a therapy session. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Either of those two is not ideal. Tell me about your childhood. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's like sophisticated performance art that incorporates those. But um, um, maybe, maybe we'll continue to dwell um, on mutual, or well, at least I'll continue to dwell on appreciation for your work. And in in respect to the term of innocence, what strikes me about your work generally, I think, was the fact that the cleanliness of the image making and its focus fundamentally on like interpersonality always caught me. Like your sensibility being the primary voice underpinning the poem. Or even like the single line, you know, because in the quarantine set, there's probably three poems, if I'm recollecting accurately, that are just single lines with a title. Your positionality interfacing with another energy source, you know, that is in a way, to me, always feeling personalized while I'm reading it, like a window that has kind of anthropomorphic characteristic in the way that you've written about it, or a cat, Mm. or a fireplace, there is kind of like a treatment of object with richness, a kind of anthropomorphic richness. And I'm not sure whether I feel that way because I understand that like you have a really admirable amount of personal, spiritual anchoring in interpersonality, like you, you have a rich social world. And so I'm not sure whether I like understand that and then read that in your work or whether it's actually explicitly embedded in the work. I guess we'd need like a third party to check. But how do you feel about that? Do you feel like in a way these poems at least, the quarantine set and one story a day, um, contain moments at least which formalize interpersonal or relational experiences that you value in your life socially? Well, yeah. Um, thank you. I. I really kind of love that and I feel um, slightly, well, I feel very um, touched by that assessment but also like bug bug under a microscope <laughs> as well. You know, it's very, it's sort of like that feeling of um, you've hit the nail on the head and, uh. <laughs> uh, but also the way you frame the question is really beautiful. I feel like there's certainly not that kind of um, conscious intention but when I often when I do like in in the writing of the work to encapsulate, well, no, I I am seeking to capture a moment, um, but I'm not sort of having any kind of intention to um, commit someone or an or a relationship to, you know, to set it in amber kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but what I find so often in going back over my work is how intensely I have done that and how I think it's for me personally, it speaks to a kind of inherent love and panic that's always going on inside me, existing as ephemeral and um, and of valuing people so much yeah. and adoring them so much that I just want to, you know, gaze upon them and, um, you know, listen to them and um, look at how they move their faces. And, and then so I'm, I'm just like, uh, uh, you know, like... Yeah. I remember once there was a, a book that I adore, but it's, it's kind of a loaded reference, but it's um, one that I read a few times years ago called Tuesdays with Maury. Do you are familiar with this no, book I at all? It. It's quite... It's very, very um, emotional and maybe slightly cloying, but it's it's a beautiful story and it's about this guy who, long story short, he um, it's it's a true story, but this journalist who spent a significant amount of time or spent every Tuesday um, with an old teacher of his who was dying and every Tuesday he would get these like, you know, pearls of wisdom and things. Anyway, there's this one image from that story that always sticks in my mind where he says... As he's recording this old professor of his, Maury, and capturing his pearls of wisdom, he suddenly realises he's like trying to steal something from death's duffel bag. And I often have this in my mind after I've written something 
yeah, that's absolutely the impulse is to steal something from death's stuff, death's duffel bag. Mm-hmm. You know, to come back to the question, it's I feel like I'm I'm so conscious of how unlasting we are and that's honestly probably the primary impulse of my writing is to like bat death away and yeah. in some useless way. Well, yeah, because I guess like preserving and aesthetically articulating the complexities of social relationships is like, like to me that strikes me as an incredible way to achieve that, you know. The reason I bring it up is because sometimes I reflect on the kind of work that over the last five years has given me the uh, inspirational impulse that you spoke about. And relative to your work, it feels quite atomized and uh, I wouldn't say antisocial, but yeah, certainly not like centrally celebratory of the social So like more of an icy kind of edge to it, I think, in a way. Honestly, what I would say that absolutely struck me, though I would would have my own way of putting that, is I, I do have something of almost, you know, this inescapable humanity at the core of my writing, whether yeah. I want it to be or not. It's a, often I think it's t- sometimes to its detriment where I think I can almost slip into sentimentality or I can slip into something, again, that to keep using this word, can feel cloying. That's what I'm always trying to, to get away from. You know, against that going through Drone and going through um, previous works of yours that I've read, it's I'm so struck by really like even this morning I had the thought... There's, there was one poem that was dedicated to um, someone who at the time when I first read it, I didn't, didn't know them. And then since I've, I've come to know them personally and it um, was sort of talking, the imagery and the poetry is all like pearls and, um, and it's all this very ethereal um, and kind of sometimes jagged, sometimes steely, but very kind of um, material. And yeah, it, it felt like these sort of material descriptions to the point where it made me realise that the first time I read that poem before I realised it was, before I'd taken in properly that it was dedicated to a person, it was striking me as a scene. Mm-hmm. Now going back and reading it again and having this sense of the person who it's dedicated to, who is a musician and who is an artist. And I'm like, oh, wow, you've like, you've created this image and this feeling and this like series of colours and shapes and materials that kind of encompass this person's artistic presence and their music and their style and their flashing eyes and all these other kinds of qualities about them. But yeah, it's it's such an entirely different approach to yeah. rendering a person. Yeah, totally. Um, and it's magnificent. It's like, I just love how different people's brains are. Yeah, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Because that is a, a key distinction, I would say. Like, like when I think about process sometimes, like if I want to write about someone, I will... One thing that I think is a failing of mine in my perception is going in fear of sentimentality. Mm-hmm. Because of like, I think can committing oneself to the prospectively or likely sentimental sequence of images, sequence of expressions, like to me that is seems so difficult. I would say like there is a core of that f- phenomenon recurrently in my reception of your work. I don't know. To me, it seems really brave, you know, because it's like there are two layers to it. Like if you commit to the to the prospectively or likely sentimental image at the beginning of a poem and then see it all the way through, you never know what's going to happen. Like it either mm-hmm. fails, it could fail aesthetically or it could fail sonically. You know, it's a lot of risk. And often I feel as though like when I have sat down to write and in, in terms of just getting going, I haven't chose to sat in discomfort, but instead have just started with a concrete image and then maybe the poem sort of, completes quite quickly after that and really it's not connected in some cases to any more significant uh, event or uh, relationship that's that's in actual fact relevant to my life. It might just be a, a sequence of uh, tactilities or, or images and in some cases, like, like to me, that feels like, you know, you've completed a poem but have you really, you know, <laughs> it could just be like 
an equivalent of a kind of personal text message or something like mm. that, or as though it has maybe the primary purpose of, of the poem is like to feel as though one has completed something <laughs> in the day and the, the subordinate purpose is, is going after something like over-sentimentality in search of a crystalline human moment that's mm. expressed through aesthetic sculpting or however you you would phrase it. So mm. anyway, I just think it's like it's a brave approach and to do it poem after poem I think is... Exhausting. Yeah, I imagine it would be. My, my follow-up... I'm thinking even for the reader. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like that's a good seg into something else I've been thinking about, which is your architectural practice. And if we're thinking about materiality in the sense that we've been speaking about it, but also another overarching thing I'm, I'm struck by or that I inhabit when I'm reading your work is this sense of spaciousness. And then sometimes there's this real closeness, like, um, you know, a cushion to the face sort of closeness. But there, yeah, you, I feel like I have such a sense of moving in and out of spaces and up and down through the sky and onto that leaf and into that car and dragged along behind it and then into this building and and I'm I'm really interested to gauge how close is your writing to your practice as an architect. Um, yeah, well, I yeah I hope I certainly hope to be an architect. I should I have to put the disclaimer in that I'm, I'm still a student. Like uh, <laughs> my but, my ignorance. No, no, that's okay. I I'm uh, I'm not sure whether the relevant regulatory body will be listening. Probably not. <laughs> Um, but one can always hope. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, so uh, in that sense, it is it is foundling. So I wonder whether my sentiment will change. But certainly one thing that I think is really striking to me about buildings and built environments is that they can be construed as like a single image, uh, in like a perspectival external um, view of a building. Or as you walk through them, they have a kind of parallax imagistic effect where the images collapse into each other depending on your position and where your head is looking. I suppose if if one is interested in poems comprising sequential images that sometimes sit alongside each other and sometimes collapse into each other, the experience of walking through a particular kind of building might be the same if one pays the same amount of attention. That's kind of more of a theoretic proposal of uh, similarity between poems and architecture uh, yeah, there are other ways in which I feel it's quite distinct. And to me, that seems really refreshing in a way. Like, it's, it, 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 for some reason, it feels quite nice to me to feel as though there could be a, an architectural exercise involving the preparation of a set of documents for construction. And that can just feel like work. Or um, sometimes I use the phrase, the fantastic mundane, to describe it, uh, which I suppose you could invert. It could be... Uh, the mundane fantastic <laughs> if you wanted to do it. It's a new band name. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like kind of like in actual fact, it is something that is procedural. And in many ways, the drawings that you might spend 30 hours completing for a builder or be part of a team that contributes to the completion of a set for a builder might just be discarded or they might erase or be erased from your computer. Or And yeah, all of that work dissipates. The fact that it, it doesn't have to have uh, a coding of aesthetic value uh, to me necessarily to me is quite like that's handy because uh, like I guess it, it can be more or less artful depending on how you're feeling on the day and I think that's probably with respect to your uh, comment before about the writerly exhaustive feeling of pursuing sentiment and and having an attempt at capturing it with many, if not most of your poems. I feel as though it's nice to have the option to either tap in or tap out and either it can be valuable and expressive or it can be mundane and vocational. Mm. And how about you with music? Certainly in, in creating music, which I do with my bandmate Byron, we're in band Water Signs, and um, it's quite an ad hoc approach. So in that sense, it's exactly the same as the way that I create my writing, that I, I'll have like bursts of um, ritualized ways of doing things um, or sort of formalized ways of doing things and then they fall by the wayside and then next month I'm doing things in an entirely different way. So 
there's sort of no set way that I go about creating ever. But in terms of the way that they, they feed each other, I always sort of think of writing in the sense of sitting down with a pen and putting words down as my primary, my primary function as a human being. <laughs> when maybe it's eating, talking, putting words down. Yeah. That's just what I've always done and it's just the way I operate, um, which I'm grateful for and thankful for because I know that not everybody has a place to go to mm. like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm conscious that it's kind of a, a luxury in a way. And then I would say after that comes making music, not because it's lesser or anything like yeah. that, um, but to me the music is another way of giving voice to the writing. And because I love seeing bands play and I yeah. love music and I love, I love hearing words delivered in different ways. Even if they're not words, I love hearing human expression delivered in different ways or I love experiencing it in all kinds of different ways. Expression is kind of the, the thing at the core of both practices and I either want to be expressing it or receiving. And so I feel like uh, for me it's like, yeah, the writing, the writing bleeds into the music and to kind of maybe draw another parallel with your work, the music becomes a space to inhabit. Um, I do feel like music, I'm not the first person to, to sort of draw that association between music and architecture that mm. there is you know, one's the abstract space that you create for a person to exist within. Mm. One's the literal. And my feeling is that they're both dealing with altering the state a person is in in a moment, whether that's overt or conscious or, you know, you walk into a space and it affects your psychology, it mm. affects your feelings, um, affects how you feel about yourself, how you feel about other people, how you feel about the space, of course, how you feel about life. Mm. The way light enter, enters a room mm. can completely change your train of thought. Mm. And I feel like music does mm. does the same kind of thing. It's, it's a very broad comparison to make. Mm. But, yeah, I, I do think there is that, that association. And my bandmate, Byron, my Byron Mayer is an architect mm. and and we often do talk about this kind of sp yeah, spatial aspect mm. to the music. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious to know your thinking about space and your thinking about if there is a, a, a connection between that mm. way of creating or the way that you approach mm. writing. Yeah, I think that there are definitely procedural similarities and... Um, I should just mention before I forget this, I came across the work recently of an architectural researcher whose specialty is acoustics and he proposes as the core of his, his research stream the underpinning thesis that if we used sophisticated acoustic tools to map the acoustics of historic buildings, we would essentially emerge with such a rich amount of new information that it would constitute a kind of auxiliary timeline, like a historic timeline. So we understand their, um, for example, their structural features, which have been analysed by engineers and architects. But in many cases, we don't explicitly understand the particulars of their acoustic aspects. So the, yeah, that, the, the connection is certainly in the, in the formal literature is pretty close. And, and the, at least this person is currently investigating it as kind of the driving force of their their career in, in research. The, the sense of being enclosed uh, within an envelope and experiencing an isolated set of phenomena standing inside a building and feeling a spatial effect in a similar way to putting on a set of headphones and feeling a spatial effect that's generated through music. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems schematically almost the same thing to me, really, you know. Yeah, that, I didn't know Byron was an architect. That's really interesting. Yes. Yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. I'm sure I did have a lot better stuff to say <laughs> than I do. But um, I, I don't know, there's, there's that compelling quote. I, I'm not sure who to attribute this to. I think 
I, I don't know. I think Goethe is coming to mind, but I think that's incorrect. Uh, architecture is frozen music, but uh-huh. I, I've never heard that. <gasps> it's quite it's quite compelling on a kind of uh, again a kind of schematic level. Um, I'm not. I haven't actually ever thought about it in a, in a significant way. Um, so I'm not sure. I'll just leave that there for the moment. <laughs> whoever said that. Uh, you can leave that there on the raised hairs on my arms um, yeah. as I like think, oh my gosh, I need to find out more about this project that you're talking about of the yeah. person who's mapping the um, acoustics of spaces. Yeah. Yeah, wild. We could have a whole yeah. other rabbit hole, um, go down a whole rabbit hole on that, but... Yeah, it's, um, wow, that's, at first it seems like it's such a broad kind of abstract, even like a, I don't know, or, or even a hackneyed sort of um, thought, you know, the, the music and the architecture association, but it's all about mood or something. I don't know, that's what I feel like I want to say. I don't know if I'm getting too abstract, but if I, if I come back to drone, if I come back to your, your poetry and your writing, I'm so cognizant of the moods that it puts me in. And you, I suppose, could say that about any piece of writing or any piece of art. Mm. But there's, it just feels like there is a real treatment of space. And I don't think it's just because I know about you studying mm. architecture. Um, <clears throat> another thing that occurred to me, because I think about them a lot, is how your work gives me the feeling of Cocteau Twins. Okay. Um, that's, uh, and it's, it's like, I do think about them a lot um, and I listen to them a lot. But especially like in looking at Drone again the last couple of weeks and reading it again in the sun this morning and having such a sense of, yeah, the spaces that your work puts me in, I suddenly went, oh, I've been listening a lot to Victoria Land lately mm-hmm. and um, also the Pink Opaque. Those are some of my favourite albums. And been so conscious of the way that Elizabeth Fraser and Robin Guthrie are so much about creating like, you know, these these great sort of washes of colour and in my mind towers and, mm-hmm. um, you know, sunsets and, yeah, strange dreamscapes and... <clears throat> but I'm always very conscious of being put in a space when I listen to their mm. music, like, mm. and that there is almost a, a synesthetic quality mm. um, to their music. But I think their like um, cover art really encapsulates mm. as an aside. Totally. But yeah. um, and it hasn't occurred to me before in in reading your work. But I was like, oh, your treatment of sound, space. Then, you know, to go from the macro of like feeling like you're being put in a space to then also having something very close to your face or even be biting it or mm. um, there's something very visceral and, you know, there's these globby moments, there's <laughs> these like crunchy moments. Does sound patterning or the music of the perspective word, is that like a primary concern, would you say? I'd say it's like to me it comes it's equally as important as uh, what I want to say or the image I want to capture, the moment I want to capture. Yeah, I'm constantly crunching on words and feeling them in my mouth. They need to sound right. It's absolutely as important as the meaning or the the message. It's part of it. It's part of the meaning and the message. And it's certainly where transitioning uh, into creating music and often, you know, the lyrics of our songs are butchered poems. When we've created the sound first, I will sort of go back through some of my notebooks, sometimes almost randomly and like um, even really old notebooks and I'll go, I must find something and I'll, you know, pull out at random some old thing and then <clears throat> kind of jam it into that song but then, you know, elongate this take that word out, put in a better sounding word where the vowel is nicer for that yeah. part of the music and yeah. stretch it out. You know, yeah, yeah, definitely the sound is equally as important. And I and I have to say that's something I find so satisfying in your work is the treatment of sound. And I have to read your poems out loud. 
um, <clears throat> and look like a crazy lady. And I sort of haven't done it in public much, but um, but definitely even just sitting at home, I'm always conscious that like my bedroom window is right next to my neighbor's lounge room window. And I'm like, <laughs> and I was like this morning sitting in the sun with the window open and loudly reading your poems out to myself and then um, thinking, oh, you know, wonder what. What my neighbour is is making of this, <laughs> because I really want to feel the words in my mouth, yeah. and yeah, that's that definitely that you know inextricable relationship for me with with the words and the music. Is that something that you're cognizant of as you're creating a piece? Are you trying out words for their sound as well as like? the image that you're driving at or what's your process in that sense? Yeah, totally. I, I should say thank you for that. That's such a lovely thing to say. Um, the Yeah, the moment of selecting a, a word is really fascinating to me. I, I feel like lying in that soup, um, <laughs> the soupy moment with like, uh, oh, like alphabet <laughs> lettuce floating <laughs> around you um, that are candidates for selection is really an incredible moment. I suppose maybe that is that is a, a distinctly poetic moment. I often have difficulty personally distinguishing between prose and poems, but maybe that's like maybe by comparison with a longer form work or something, the net time spent on word selection is is greater in the construction of a short poem. I mean, certainly I, I do recall writing some that were probably only 20 words long, including the title, and it took hours to select the right set of words. But yeah, it is. I would say it's a primary concern. Yeah, and it's. I guess if that moment of prospective selection of a number of candidate words is like a corridor that you enter, then there are several floating dust motes that pull you along the corridor. I would say, and one of the larger ones, more twinkly ones for me, is sound for sure. But also, yeah, conc concrete meaning. I think is is important to me as well. Like I often have found that, this sounds awful to say, but I have often found in my limited experiments with chat GPT that the clarity of some of the expression is almost poetic to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say poetic mm. in a kind of scholarly way, you know, least amount of highly accurate words possible to communicate clearly a given idea. So in a way horrifying, in another way humbling. Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly of... of primary importance. And yeah, I, 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 do, I, I do think about some scholarly work that I have read and attempted to understand, um, such as the work that I mentioned before of the, the acoustic researcher. And I've been overcome by the clarity of the phrase, in which case word selection so as to accelerate the integrity of the meaning and its you know, clarity of transmission is, is to me extremely striking. There's a, a pejorative tone whenever I think of the adjective academic that I'm aware of existing in the cultural soup. Um, but in many ways, to me, if, if the work is particularly clear, it is indistinguishable in a way from, from something poetic because a single topic is being focused on, maybe a fragment of a topic, maybe for a whole career by this person. I mean, if that's not poetic, I'm, I'm not sure what is. So it's interesting to think about those pejorative uh, connotations floating around and where they might have sprung from. I suppose maybe the term academic in its pejorative articulation means something that's unclear rather than something that's clear. So That was exactly yeah. what I was thinking, that there's a stuffiness or a yeah. <clears throat> and it, that maybe an intention to um, be grandiose or yeah. maybe even that's not the intention but that's the effect. It's like yeah. something bewildering and inaccessible. Mm. But I I feel like... I utterly agree with you about that when clarity, when plainness is mm. thrilling. Mm. I, it, to me, it feels like the written equivalent of, of having eye contact with someone. Mm. It's just that. Mm. I feel like for me, what came to mind listening to you just now was, you know, I have been writing all my life. And I come from a very verbal family. <laughs> um, and uh, from a line of writers, Irish writers and, um, and Scottish and English as well. But um, <clears throat> definitely we love words um, for, good, for better or worse. 
and I've always written, but where I feel like I really started to get serious about my writing was when I was about 16 mm-hmm. and I was working in a bookshop and uh, someone had ordered in a copy of short stories by Runosuke Aktagawa. Anyone who's not familiar with him, he's he wrote In a Bamboo Grove and that became Rashomon, the Kurosawa film. Mm. He, he's one of my favourite writers still to this day. I'm 36 now, so yeah, 20 years ago. And I just remember someone had ordered this book in and they never came to pick it up. And one day I was probably, you know, taking their name off it and we're just going to put it on the bookshelf. And then I actually, you know, had a look through it and I just remember opening it up to a very short story. It's it's like the tiniest paragraph and it's just this guy who's wandering through Tokyo on a in the 1930s maybe, 20s or 30s, and it's rainy and cold and he, um, you know, it's it's very simply written, he's quite miserable and then suddenly he looks up and sees uh, a tram, a streetcar pass and as it does these purple sparks appear on top of the tram at the point where it touches the line and he says, I would give my life to hold them in my hands and that's the story. And as a 16-year-old sitting in this bookshop and I was a very flowery writer and that line, I just remember I like was like, oh, and everything changed. (laughs) That's like the moment I can actually pinpoint when like my taste changed. Maybe not changed but just like a real diamond moment of clarity Mm. of what maybe was inherent. Maybe it had risen up or featured in my life in other ways um, that I wasn't conscious of but that was the moment of, oh, this is how you do it. Like firstly, oh, you can do that. Like you can just say something weird but really plainly and just destroy someone yeah. or like, you know, make the rest of their life or uh, <laughs> I feel like that line sort of made the rest of my life and uh, I still like, I still get chills when I like yeah. say it, think it, read it, pick up that old copy which then of course I took home with me and then devoured that book and was like, oh. and then I went back through all the people he loved um, Natsumi Soseki was another one that he loved and just sort of that that moment of Japanese modernism, I think that's yeah. what it gets called around the 20s and 30s. Yeah. Um, whereas like just the most clean, pristine but also strange writing yeah. um, from strange perspectives, new kinds of autofiction, what mm. later would become autofiction, you know, um, Running parallel to say like Virginia Woolf yeah. doing what she was doing, James Joyce doing what he was doing, but this very Japanese, distinctly Japanese yeah. flavour of minimalism and spareness, but that just, yeah, in three words, you have a universe. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that to me forevermore has been the guiding principle and I'm constantly failing in, in either including or uh, including that in my work or having it as an objective or having it even just as a yeah as a guide but just it's something I admire so greatly and to come back to what you were saying truly I understand that feeling of being like oh, breath taken away by a chat GBT line yeah I don't want to turn this into a chat GBT talk but seriously it's part of what is I think so affecting in a moment like that when computer delivers a magnificent yeah. straight line is that it's a computer. Yeah. Like part of the move, part of feeling moved by it maybe or yeah. part of feeling affected is of going like, oh, it could come from anywhere. Yeah. Like Matt, the, the, the piercing moment could yeah. come from anywhere and that's thrilling. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Yeah. Like for me, the most striking influence was John Berryman's Dream Songs, which I only came across uh, four years ago, actually. So when I was 25, very similar feeling. Uh, not actually minimalist works, but highly structured, usually three stanzas of six lines each. And tonally, 
I would say, very similar to that example that that you gave in the sense that there is a kind of metropolitan overlay to many of them and the idea of a phenomenon like electricity or something similar that has a direct beauty but a simultaneous capacity to harm the extremely mortal human who might try to interact with it is something that I've always found in those poems of his. And uh, one thing I found extremely striking about Berryman when I researched him was he corresponded with numerous other confessional American writers throughout the mid to latter half of the 20th century um, before he he died in, I think, 72, if I'm remembering correctly. And he said uh, some variant of, I just can't stop writing them. I just, you know, I scroll them on napkins and wake up often and uh, there are there are new songs coming out of him constantly. Um, so... Yeah, in a, way, in a way, there is a kind of childlike um, uh, uh, surrender to the immediate impulse in underpinning those works. Um, but they're also, they also are fairly tragic because they chronicle, as, as you guys might know, the difficulties with alcoholism and his interpersonal difficulties and his difficulties in his employment at the, I think, the University of Minnesota. And, you know, in the, in the latter, later years of his life, his consequent health problems, which, which were significant. So in a similar way to the, to the idea of a, an aestheticized, beautiful, yet prospectively harmful phenomenon like electricity, tonally very complex in, in my understanding of, of those works, and interestingly framed as both dreams and songs. So I suppose relevant, <laughs> it was strangely relevant to what we've been talking about, although maybe it's not strange in a way. But yeah, that, that collapsing of dream and song, I think, probably more or less captures everything we've been speaking about, really. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crossings was produced by me, Jess Sinoni. It was co-produced and audio engineered by Sam Panifex. Our theme music is by Georgia Ferry, a.k.a. Baby G. The artwork for Crossings was designed by Tanika Page. Thank you to Henry Farnan, EWF's Marketing and Publicity Coordinator. Thank you to Genevieve and Felix for their conversation. To find out more about Genevieve and Felix and all the artists involved in Crossings, you can go to emergingwritersfestival.org.au. Genevieve and Felix have generously provided a selection of their poems to read at your leisure, available on our website. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join us again next week where we'll hear a conversation between writers Vivian Nguyen and Jamie Tran. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating or review.